we should definitely not have this be part of our podcast episode. Oh, absolutely not. Do you want to start the intro? Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Matt, how have you been the last couple of weeks? I've been good. I've been very good. I've got a new job. It's a paid writing gig. It's working for an app that is somewhat related to Facebook, which means that I'm making Zuckbucks. It is wonderful. I am having a wonderful time doing that. If you were a listener to this podcast and our sister podcast, The Secrets of Story Podcast, I apologize. There has not been a new episode of that for some time. Hopefully we will get one turned out of that. I have been working on this job. My new book is coming out called The Secrets of Character, Writing Heroes That Anyone Will Love. If you are used to my mellifluous tones on this podcast, then I want to taunt you and tease you because they asked me this week to record the audiobook and I (laughs) tried it and I hated it and I said, no, I just couldn't do it. I obviously love my voice well enough to have two podcasts and host Bar Trivia every Tuesday, but I don't love my voice enough to do an audiobook. You know, I've got a certain speech pediment on certain words that I just avoid saying when I'm speaking, but I can't avoid because they're in my book. And uh, this book just needs an actor. It's got a lot of excerpts from books and movies and plays, and it needs an actor. So I decided not to do it. You can live your own life, Matt. (laughs) I just decided I can do it. How have you been, Steve? I've been fine. Nothing particularly momentous on my end. Working on lasers and reading comics and keeping the household running. That's about it. But enough about me. I'm not that interesting. Let's get into some comics that are much more interesting. So I actually put a little effort into this podcast, which I rarely do. And I said, you know, before we just blunder into making assumptions about what's going to happen in upcoming books, I'm actually going to peek ahead at some of these upcoming books. And I found all sorts of stunning things. First of all, we are about to have the sequel to the Kirby Apocalypse. We are about to have the Ayers Apocalypse. And you have claimed that you are not a big fan of Ayers inking on Fantastic Four. Well, I'm going to tell you, you're about to be. You are about to realize just how wonderful Ayers inking on Fantastic Four was, because we're about to have a bunch of terrible inkers coming up on Fantastic Four. So I'm going to tell you now to be appreciative while you can of Ayers inking on the next two issues of Fantastic Four. Another thing I realized coming up is we're about to get to the era in which Stan starts writing all the books by himself. All of these guest scripters, Larry Lieber and Robert Bernstein and H.E. Huntley, are about to go away. And the third thing I realized is that once again, we were wrong when we said, okay, well, surely now Kirby will never draw any more issues of Human Torch and Ant-Man and the Wasp. Well, he may never draw Iron Man again, but we were totally wrong about Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is to say when Ant-Man becomes Giant Man, Kirby will come back for that. and. Of course, the Human Torch is going to introduce Captain America. And of course, they bring Kirby back for that. So Kirby still is in the hopper for both Human Torch and Ant-Man and So I have already discovered various things where we are going to regret having gotten things wrong. And I am a voice from the future to warn you. I think that when you had said something about him not drawing Iron Man again or him not drawing Ant-Man again, I think I said, I will follow you off that cliff. (laughs) I meant it more than I realized. Also, just as a teaser for later in the episode, there is another guest scripter this month that we have not seen before that works on Strange Tales, on the Human Torch story. Do you know who the actual writer is behind that pseudonym? No, I don't. Okay, well, we'll have to wait and find out, won't we? Oh, oh, wow. Okay, exciting. (laughs) You're assuming we're going to get to that in this episode. So I should say that this month is another Mighty Marvel explosion. 
This month contains eight books, no books with two stories in them because Doctor Strange is gone this month. But we've got eight books with one story each. And I assume this will once again be broken up two episodes. Last time we had six comics with seven stories in them and that got broken up over two episodes. So surely this month when we've got such huge, important comics to talk about, such as X-Men number one and Avengers number one, I suspect that you are not going to hear us discuss either of those books in this episode that you're going to hear in the next episode, which is to say, you may ask, well, wait, if we move alphabetically within the month, why wouldn't we discuss Avengers first? I've got a proposal to make for that. Generally speaking, in Marvel Comics, Avengers was always the last title released that month. We're about to meet Giant Man in Tales to Astonish, and then he shows up in Avengers later that month as Giant Man. We're about to have Iron Man's new armor in Tales of Suspense, and then it shows up later that month in Avengers. So I want to propose that we do everything alphabetically except the Avengers, which we keep to the end. I'm totally fine with that. We are going to try to keep ourselves to a strict time limit for any of the books that are not done by Lee with either Kirby or Ditko. So Journey into Mystery, Strange Tales, not Tales of Suspense, though, because we introduced some important characters there, but Tales to Astonish, all of those we're going to try to keep ourselves down to a minimum of time so that we can have a little more time to talk about other things. But we are continuing to burn up our time here, and I know that our listeners' ear holes are precious resources that we want to respect. So let's go ahead and get into this here. So are we starting with Amazing Spider-Man? Shove some content into my ear hole. That's what they're saying right now. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Amazing Spider-Man number four. On the cover, we see Amazing Spider-Man trying to grab someone called the Sandman, and he turns to sand and avoids him. It says nothing can stop the Sandman. In issue number two, we had the Vulture. In issue number three, we had Dr. Octopus. Here in issue number four, we have the Sandman. Three knockout villain designs in a row. Ditko is just killing it. And this is such a fascinating villain design. We get our first example of the distinctive Ditko hairstyle that will later be had by Norman and Harry Osborn. It's here had by the Sandman. This is just an absolutely gorgeous cover. You get to inside a very humorous beginning, which I feel like is somewhat Ditko-esque. It gets into some of Ditko's thoughts about man and God in law. Spider-Man sees three people who are obviously criminals, obviously about to break into a jewelry store. He goes down and tries to grab them before they do it. And they're like, well, you just attacked us out of the blue. So police, police. And they call the police over and they get the police to come. And they're like, oh, hey, arrest Spider-Man. He just attacked us out of the blue. And Spider-Man's like, oh, this will teach me not to go charging into things until I know what the score is. So then Spider-Man has to run away. So Spider-Man isn't wanted by the police yet. He's one step shy of being wanted by the police. The police will still hassle him and threaten to arrest him if they see him. Spider-Man then is blaming J. Jonah Jameson for this. So he breaks into J. Jonah Jameson's office and leaves some webbing on his chair. The panel where he is webbing his way towards the Daily Bugle is just a gorgeous panel. Yes. The arc of the web as it's arcing its way to the next building, is just the simplest little thing that is exquisite. Just the sense of depth and perspective it provides. Spider-Man then sees some police cars chasing after somebody. He sees that somebody is running away. It is the Sandman. He tries to grab the Sandman. The Sandman turns to sand. Spider-Man's mask then gets ripped off. He realizes he has to run away and not continue the fight because he imagines if he were caught and arrested, he pictures Aunt May selling shoelaces for 10 cents on the street corner. So then he gives up, runs away. Sandman turns into sand, breaks into a bank, starts stealing money. As I've said, generally, I think that you are a bigger fan of Ditko's art than I am. I love his storytelling. I'm fascinated about him. But in this issue, I love the art. The top of page five, that very first panel where Sandman is punching Spider-Man with his midsection, right? Because he's 
Sandman. He can just move his body around like sand. And so he just turns basically his stomach into a sand bag that he just whacks Spider-Man with. I it is love awesome. that. Yes, Dicko goes crazy with Sandman and really enjoys the hell out of drawing him. So then Spider-Man has out his trusty needle and thread to sew up his costume. He sees on TV, they're reporting that the Sandman was in prison. He escaped. He, of course, ended up hiding out on an atomic devices proving ground. And when the atomic bomb went off, instead of instantly dying from radiation poisoning, he got the power to turn his body into sand. Because it was actually on a beach. Yes, that's right. He was laying on a sandy beach where they were testing nuclear devices and he merged with the sand. Aunt May comes in and Peter has to quickly put on a robe over his costume and then she assumes he's sick because he's wearing a robe. Eventually, he gets out, puts on his tie. Now, this is interesting. Peter is basically the only teenager left in the Marvel Universe at this point who does wear a tie. When you see Rick Jones and the Teen Brigade, they aren't wearing ties. When you see Johnny Storm at this point when he's in school, they aren't wearing ties. And none of Peter's friends are wearing ties anymore. This is clearly like Peter is a nerd at this point in 1963 for continuing to wear a tie in high school, whereas Johnny himself would wear a tie in high school, I think, in the early days of his book. Yes. Also, this is the first reference to Peter Parker wearing his Spider-Man costume under his civvies, if I'm not mistaken. And that becomes important, of course, because later he needs to turn into Spider-Man in the middle of his high school. Unexpectedly. Spoiler alert. J. John Jameson comes to work, sits down in the webbing that has been left on his chair. He is very unhappy. His secretary is somewhat amused by this. She already seems rather delightful. She is going to be a major character in this book. This is Betty Brandt, who will go on to be Peter's first girlfriend. There's not instant fireworks between them. She says, oh, would you bring these trousers into Mr. Jameson, Peter? He's in such a bad mood. I hate to face him. And and then he says, sure, Miss Brandt. And they don't have any more interaction than that. But already she seems appealing. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of her. Two things I want to point out here. One, is it just me or does J. Jonah Jameson buy his slacks at the same place that Bruce Banner does? That's true. Well, these are sort of purple <laughs> pinstripes. So, you know, the yes. Hulk doesn't have pinstripes. But. but he's got multiple purple pinstripe pants. Because <laughs> then the other thing is that when Peter starts dating Betty, it's always a little bit unclear what the age difference is there. Indeed. I mean, He's a high school, like what, sophomore? And here she is working as a secretary in a newspaper. Yeah, she might be a 17 or 18 year old, you know, out there working in the world. I don't know if you would be younger than that and being a secretary in in those days. That's going to be an issue that will remain kind of mysterious to me going forward. Again, talking about the exceptionally great art in this episode, page nine, panel six, that close up of J. Jonah Jameson. Once again, exquisite is the word that keeps on coming back to me here. It's just fantastic. Ditko in particular has a lot of fun with a lot of the supporting characters, facial expressions in this issue. It's just absolutely fantastic. It is. So then on the same page, we meet Peter's two main love interests for the rest of his high school years. We meet Betty Brandt at the top of page nine. And on the bottom of page nine, we meet... Liz Allen. Now, she is instantly someone who looks very much like the Bond we have been seeing in the previous three issues and Amazing Fantasy number 15. So I've been referring to her as sort of proto-Liz Allen in those issues. But this is the first time she is named Liz Allen as we see her hanging out with Flash Thompson. Peter, and this is, again, how different things were in 1963. (laughs) Peter, even though she is sort of Flash Thompson's girlfriend and she is beautiful Bond person, and he is a beautiful Bond person, and they're sort of top A-list at the school, Peter has a date with Liz that night, like a very casual date, like the sort of things people used to go on back in 1963. 
And then Peter realizes he has to cancel because he is going to have to track down the Sandman. And she is very offended by this. This was sort of a pity date. And she considered herself to be sort of stooping down, I think, to date him. Indeed. He says, suffering cats. I forgot all about my date with Liz and I don't have to break it. Gee, Liz, I'm sorry. I can't make it. Something kind of came up. Then he says, gee, don't be angry, Liz. You see, I, I have to study for tomorrow's exam. And she says, Peter Parker, you're the top student in the class. If you can't spare one evening for a date, then I'm sorry for you. Goodbye. The idea that, you know, the class nerd would just randomly be going on a date with the hot class blonde was not as strange in 1963. It was just expected that girls went on dates with lots of guys and that any guy could ask out any girl. There just wasn't the sense of the time of a date being that big of a deal. What seems more out of the ordinary in this situation appears to be just the fact that he would then blow that chance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not that the chance had happened in the first place, but that it's like, oh, dude, now you're up. Meanwhile, we're, we're about to get a picture of Flint Marco, Sandman, escaping the cops as a snake, which, again, yes. <laughs> fantastic. Just gorgeous. And then we get one of the biggest coincidences <laughs> in Spider-Man history where Sandman is being chased by the cops and decides he has to cheese it he says, they may be having a tough time holding me, but they sure are wearing me down. I got to find a place where I can hole up for a while. And of all the places he could choose, he chooses Peter Parker's high school way out in Forest Hills, Queens. Did you ever see the first Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movie at all? I did, yes. The fight scene with the lizard in that movie very much feels like they read this issue with him fighting Sandman in the high school and said, that's what we want this to be like. I do not remember a single moment of that movie, so I will take your word for that. There were some enjoyable moments, and that was one of the nice things about it, was having this colossal supervillain fight in his high school. And when, mm -hmm. I was, when I was reading this, I'm like, ah, right, that's where this came from. So then we get a moment that's sort of like when Dr. Doom suddenly wanted to become secretary of the treasury in Kennedy's <laughs> cabinet. Simon is hanging out in the high school and sort of stumbles into a class, and then he suddenly says, quiet, you, I'll do the talking. So you're the principal, eh? Hmm. Know something? I never graduated school. Maybe this is my chance to get a diploma. I figure a guy like me deserves the best of everything. So I want you to write me out a diploma or else. And it's like, okay, I'm not sure. Like he was just looking for a place to hide out. Like I demand that you hide me from the police would be seem to be a perfectly logical way to go in the story instead of suddenly him demanding a diploma of the principal, which is not how diplomas work. Spider-Man is, of course, here at school. So then he bursts in to fight the Sandman. They then have a wonderful fight. And Dicko just pushes his imagination to the limit in terms of all the things that Sandman can transform into in terms of like having his hands be hammers, wrapping up Spider-Man in a ball and tumbling him downstairs and doing all these things. Like but going then, back uh, and forth between being soft sand that you can't really punch to being rock hard. And uh, but then Spider-Man then plays just as good with that. You know, he thinks he's about to punch right through him and then realizes, oh, wait, my Spidey sense says that he's turned hard as a rock. So instead, I will last minute turn this into a wrestling move since i know that he's hard and can be manhandled right now great thinking through uh and imagining of how this fight sequence works and on the bottom of page 12 ditko just goes to town on all the facial expressions in there yes of all the kids in the class who were yes. uh cheering on spider-man and of course liz is like i wonder where peter went he isn't here and flash says who that coward he's probably hiding with his head under a desk somewhere they fight for several pages. It's very awesome. I hadn't mentioned they had set this up briefly before. There's a big industrial vacuum cleaner there in the basement. And Spider-Man figures out, I can use this industrial vacuum cleaner and suck up the Sandman into the tank, which he does. And so the fight is over. But then we get to one of the first key moments <laughs> in 
the beginning of Peter Parker's extremely miserable photojournalism ethics, where he realized, oh, I didn't take any pictures of the fight. Boy, I could sell them for a lot of money. Well, there is a bucket of sand here for putting up fires. So I will just throw that sand into the air and punch it. And I will fake photos of my fight with the Sandman that way. As it turns out, J. Joe Jameson is there. He has heard that the Sandman is there and seemingly has no reporters to send out. So he has come out himself to the school. Then Spider-Man shows up with the Sandman in a vacuum tank, offers to hand him over. And again, he's not really wanted by the police, but the police sort of chase him away. And Jameson's like, you should arrest him. And they're like, well, you know, we don't have anything on him. We can't arrest him. And besides, he seemed like he was being a good guy, but Spider-Man still doesn't trust the police around him and he gets away. Spider-Man, now that Sandman is gone, he can go ahead and go on his date with Liz. And he says, there she is. Wait up, Liz. And they go, oh, look who's here, Mr. Bookworm of 1963. And Flash says, now the fighting's over. You finally come out of hiding, eh? And Liz is like, what is it, Peter? I happen to be quite busy. He says, gee, don't be angry, Liz. I just want to tell you I can take you out tonight after all. Really? Perhaps we should declare this a national holiday. Sorry, Mr. Parker, but I've made other plans. Then you have a panel that's right out of Amazing Fantasy number 15. Deco never shy about reusing panel layouts where everybody's driving off and leaves him looking dejected on the corner. So then that's the end of our issues. Peter Parker realizes once again that Spider-Man is ruining his life as Peter Parker and he lost his chance for a date with Liz Allen. But as it turns out, he will have more chance with Liz Allen and will be juggling Liz Allen and Betty Brand. And this is one of the things I love about Spider-Man is that the status quo is always changing. Neither of them will go to college. So he will eventually go off to college and meet college girls. And both of his high school girlfriends will fade out of the book for many years and then eventually return. There was a funny Brian Cronin article on Comics Should Be Good recently about the long, strange history of Betty Brant in the comics, where she eventually became sort of a Rambo type figure. What? You didn't see this article. Explain, please. She eventually marries another reporter at the Daily Bugle. And then he seemingly gets killed, seemingly becomes the hobgoblin. There's a whole history in that. She also becomes a reporter eventually and starts getting involved in international intrigue stories and then toughens up at some point and puts on a headband and bandoliers of bullets and guns. In 90s comics, there was a series of comics in which she was sort of like Betty Brant Rambo style. So she will have a long history yet to go in these comics. Oh, the 90s. Oh, the 90s. And uh, I will include pictures on secretsofstory.com when we have our post for this episode. And I will show you Rambo Petty. You often like to point out when heroes have to be clever to win. One little clever thing that Spider-Man does that you didn't remark upon was that in order to uh, suck Sandman up into the vacuum, he has to faint another kind of attack so that Sandman's just so he like takes a drill or something like that and tries to hit him with it he's like oh I just turn into sand he's like yeah that's exactly what I wanted you to do vacuum you know it's not just hey I happen to have a vacuum here but let me make sure that this will actually work by having to take this extra step which I thought was pretty nice J. Jonah Jameson had no thought for the kid's safety when he showed up to the school he's just telling the, no. the cops like get on in there. And they're like, um, we're still evacuating the kids out of the school. This is somewhat problematic. So when uh, everyone's making fun of Pete for, you know, having disappeared during the fight and getting blown off by Liz, Flash is twisting the knife a little bit. Peter almost loses his temper, is about to just clobber Flash. And then he realizes, you know, what am I doing? I'm going to kill the guy. I mean, I'm like a superhero. I'm like, you know, I have superhuman strength. I, I might actually 
I might actually kill the guy. This, I can't do this. And then he's like, yeah, walks off. And then that just increases his humiliation. But then one of the other kids comes up to him, says, would you like us to help you cross the street, Sonny? Maybe we can. Hey, what gives? You ought to feel his arm under this jacket, Flash. Parker's got muscles like a weightlifter, <laughs> which I find a great little sequence there as well. Uh, how yeah. Every now and then it comes up like, oh, yeah, no, he just looks like this high school panty waist. But I mean, we see what his muscles look like in super <laughs> in his superhero costume. So <laughs> clearly they got to be under there somewhere. That's this true. was a fantastic issue. I really have just knocked over by it. I'm never a big fan of when a story ends up revolving around a huge coincidence, which this one certainly does. So the Ant-Man happens to take refuge in his school, but I'll allow it. And I think that if it results in a great story, why not? And in this case, it does result in a great story. And another immortal villain for the ages. He's just appeared in a big movie again. Just a fantastic look and fantastic set of powers. And it's amazing they just keep coming up with things they haven't done yet because they've already blown through a lot of story. Granted, they have 60 more years of story to blow through, but already (laughs) in the year and a half of stories we've read, they have blown through a lot of story. And just coming up with stuff this imaginative is just wonderful. It's often said that uh, a hero is only as good as his rogues gallery. Certainly, mm-hmm. one could say that about Spider-Man. He is just racking up one of the greatest rogues galleries, just one after another after another in each of these issues. <laughs> We're only four issues in, and he's already got like four of his greatest villains have already been set up, or three of them, I guess. I don't know. One way or the other. It's a very auspicious start for very good comic. This is one reason why Sony has managed to turn out so many Spider-Man movies. It's been getting rather repetitive, uh, but they have been able to have a new great villain in every one because he has such a deep bench. And it's also one of the reasons they've managed to turn out so many Batman movies because he probably has the greatest rogues gallery of any superhero. They can keep doing new Batman movies because there's still new villains they haven't tapped into yet. True. Is our next one here Fantastic Four? Before we begin, let me say, so according to MarvelFandom.com, this cover is inked by Paul Reinman, who we're going to meet for the first time inking X-Men later. I don't believe it. I think this cover is inked by George Bell, a.k.a. George Russo's, who will take over as regular Fantastic Four inker soon and who I am not a fan of because that is very distinctive inking on The Thing that mm. looks nothing like Ayers inking on The Thing. And I think it does not look like Reinman's inking. I think it looks like George Bell. We have seen Reinman once so far in the Marvel Universe. He inked one of the early issues of Hulk. Oh, I'd forgotten that. And actually, one of the things that's interesting about this is that the thing looks very rocky on this cover. He's been evolving in his look as we've been going through. As you go through this particular issue, he still looks, he's sort of halfway in between the sort of leathery, lumpy look and the hard rock look. But on this cover, he looks much more rocky. Uh, which yeah. I find well, George Bell is about to take over his incur on this book, tragically, from about 21 to 26 or so. If you like your Rocky thing, get ready for a super Rocky thing, because that is that is part of George Bell's thing, as you will see. The cover introduces the Super Scrawl, and he looks kind of like Johnny in his flaming form, just with uh, big old shoulder pads, basically. And everyone's just yelling at him. We have lots of the Fantastic Four in this issue as a family. We start out with them watching the evening news like a family sitting around. They're about to get to some news uh, involving the thing, but then they run out of time and go to a pet food commercial. And Thing throws a tantrum, jumping up and down, you know, <laughs> making all the uh, making all the furniture shake. But then everybody's going to go off and. Well, yeah, let me on. say before you move yes. on, the idea of 
TV commercials as opposed to TV sponsors was still fairly new. And, you know, you see this in The Apartment, which came out around this time. People were really offended by the whole idea of TV commercials. These, you know, 30 second spots of like, buy, 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 you know, buy this thing. That's clearly part of what's going on here. The sort of inanity of suddenly puppies in a dog food ad are interrupting a TV show. They're all heading out to go do their own thing for a little while. And we see Reed and Sue getting suited up in spacesuits. Sue is wearing her bathing suit already and is putting on her spacesuit and her space boots look like go-go boots at the moment. She's about to get fully suited up in a moment because she and Reed are taking their ICBM to Hawaii to go swimming. <laughs> yes. And then meanwhile, Thing is going to go off and go fishing for a while out of town with Alicia. They're all going off to go do their own thing. Johnny is going to tour Central Park with his fantastic car. But meanwhile, we see that in the Skrull Empire, the fifth, in quadrant. the fifth quadrant in the of the Andromeda Galaxy. Here they finally specify this is the Andromeda Galaxy. So in the fifth quadrant of the Andromeda Galaxy, the leader of the Skrulls says that he has devoted every resource on his planet to defeat the Fantastic Four. They then bring in his project, who is the Skrull, who demonstrates that he has all the powers of the Fantastic Four, but more. So he can stretch farther, he can burn hotter, he can clobber stronger. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, he can also invisible better, but they don't tell us how. But this is my fourth power, Your Majesty, that I can match the Invisible Girl. And then the Emperor says, match her. That is not enough. You must outdo her. You must be her superior. We will find out what it is eventually. And it really doesn't seem to have much to do with her powers. But, you no. know, what you going to do? So then once again, more of the Fantastic Four as a family. They are all out shopping at the mall together or I guess the department store. And they're all incognito. Thing is wearing his whole like fedora and scarf get up. Supposedly no one's recognizing them. He tries to buy a bowling ball. Of course, his fingers won't fit so he crushes the bowling ball. He then goes and finds the rest of the four, and they are all being mobbed by fans. Apparently, their whole thing of going incognito didn't work out so well. So Thing has to rescue them all from this scrum of fans, pulling Mr. Fantastic out like a big snake from under their feet while Johnny and Sue hang on to his waist and a lovely looking sequence. But then as they're trying to escape the department store, they then hear the news in the radio department and hear that essentially news of the Super Scroll. They don't yet know he's called the Super Scroll arriving in a spaceship declaring that he has now come to conquer the Earth. Yes, and he has brought a flag like Marvin the Martian. So, yes, they, they then have to escape the mall once again, and Johnny and Reed and Sue use their powers in a very visually interesting way to get out of there. Again, Sue is just causing chaos being invisible as she gets out. The scroll shows up. He is claiming this planet with the clever use of flags. Do you have a flag? Oh, you don't. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yes, indeed. So then Johnny attacks him to no avail. Meanwhile, it turns out that the thing did not escape the mall. He is still stuck in the mall at the moment. Fans are trying to rip off pieces of his clothing. And then he finally finds an escalator, which he slams to turn into a slide and uses that to get out. Once again, this is just the stuff that Kirby has so much fun with. Oh, yeah. Mr. Fantastic tries to wrap the Super Scroll up. But then the Super Scroll uses his superior stretching ability to stretch himself into a ball so large, Reed snaps off like a rubber band that someone's shooting at somebody. So then he tries to smack the Super Scroll with his fist turned into a big hammer, but the Super Scroll is able to reach all the way to the Palisades, grab a chunk of rock, and bring it 
back in time for the hammer blow to be cushioned by this block of Palisades rock. So that's quite a stretch there. It really does some damage to Reed's arm. Thing then attacks him, uh, ends up punching through the rock, but then getting his arm stuck in it. The Super Scroll is able to turn his head into the shape of a ram's head and uses it to ram the thing off the roof of the building. And he ends up uh, hurtling past the Chrysler building and catching onto the spire there where he is stuck for a little while. Reed and Johnny continue trying to attack the Super Scroll to not much effect. We have more stuff about the fire powers being sort of solid, even though they're not supposed to be. We're creating chains out of flame and things of that nature. Thing is finally rescued. At that point, the Super Scroll's like, you know what? I got these guys. I'm just going to let them sleep for a night in fear before I go and finish him off. It's like, oh, dude, um, I was going to say, haven't you watched a Bond movie? But then I guess when did the first Bond movie come out? <laughs> it was, a year earlier. Right so the okay, second one so, came out this year. Although the novels have been out for a while. So the Super Scroll is going to let them stew in their juices for a while. So, of course, Reed goes back and does a whole bunch of super sciencing and figures out that the Super Scroll is getting some kind of power boost from outer space. And he comes up with a little device that should interrupt the flow of power. So then he's got this little mobile like drone loudspeaker that he sends through the city to find the Super Scroll. Finally finds him and says, hey, we want to meet you on this unpopulated island so that we don't hurt anybody when we do this stuff. He accepts the invitation. They then head off to the pogo plane. Now, I've always been a little unclear. What makes it a pogo plane? No, I have no idea what that word means. It bounces like a pogo stick? Is, uh, is there any relationship between the words pogo stick and pogo plane? Well, it seems that it takes off vertically. So I think it may be that it's a plane, not a rocket but it takes off and lands vertically, not horizontally. Like a pogo stick? I think maybe so. I've never been clear on that, really, but I think that's what it is. Indeed. So they have used, so they have used both their ICBM and their pogo plane in this issue. Yes. Cut back to the Scrawl home planet, where they are just gleefully awaiting uh, the Fantastic Four's defeat by their agent, Super Scrawl. We now find out what the Scrawl's extra power was that makes him more powerful than the Invisible Girl. And it's the power of hypnotism, which I guess is like invisibility, but more or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, see the connection. <laughs> no, there, there is not. He's able to hypnotize the thing and Mr. Fantastic and the Human Torch. But then Sue, by being clandestine, is able to sneak up on him while he's taking care of all the rest of them and put the little jamming device on him so that now the extra power being beamed to him is not coming to him anymore. And so now he is, I don't know if he's just a plain old regular scroll at this point or whether he has somewhat Fantastic Four-like powers. But I think he's only a regular scroll now at this point. Yeah, that's totally unclear to me. Whether this beam coming from another galaxy was entirely giving him his Fantastic Four powers or just strengthening them. I was unclear on that, but reading through this again, it seems pretty clear that that was the entire source of his Fantastic Four powers. Otherwise, when Johnny seals him up in that crater, if he had more powerful flame powers, he could just come right out. So I think that he has lost all of his Fantastic Four powers. So they just seal him up in here in an airtight tight room and then they're like yeah well by the time he gets out he'll be too old to menace anyone again so we've just buried someone alive the end 
the end. And this is like this is generally a big problem in these early Stanley comics is that there was no way to imprison superpowered people. You always had to come up with these sort of bizarre makeshift prisons like, oh, we'll just seal him up in this dome because they couldn't kill him, but they also couldn't imprison them. They always had to come up with these sort of bizarre solutions. You could imprison the wizard. Well, he wasn't superpowered. But yeah, you could totally throw the wizard in prison. <laughs> Yes. Although oftentimes they seem to put villains in prison still with their costumes and their weaponry and everything sitting in their cells, as we'll see from time to time going forward. Yes. Overall, a good issue of the Fantastic Four. I like a lot of the um, Fantastic Four as family elements they're really leaning into here. Just fun, whimsical elements for the Fantastic Four. So that means we can just take a rocket to go swimming in Hawaii for a day. You know, why yes. not? That's, that's the kind of thing that we can do because we're these super delightful, super powered, lovely people. And we're also getting a little bit more of the thing complaining about his rocky countenance in a way that sort of comes across as good heartedly grumbling. Although they'll really play the line with that over time, you know, in that final panel, he's saying something like, Oh, uh, all I am is a paperweight. That actually can be masking a really deep pathos for him. We're, we're getting a lot of those elements coming into maturity here. And I really like this issue. Yeah, I like this issue a lot. Great visual imagination from Kirby in terms of the Super Scroll. You know, I think Kirby had a lot of fun with the scrolls last time. And, you know, we've seen a lot of alien villains come and go as one-off alien villains that would give the impression we're never going to see again. And this is really the first issue where they're like, hey, the scrolls were keepers, and those should be major nemeses of the Fantastic Four going forward. And they're people we can do more stuff with instead of just repeating what we did with them before. And, you know, we get to see their emperor for the first time and their planet for the first time. And I think that it is good to go ahead and elevate them to that level. And I think they're great villains and they will continue to be great villains. And the politics of the Scroll Empire will occupy lots of wonderful comics going forward from the Kree Scroll War. Oh, I just love the Engelhart Silver Surfer run from the late 80s, early 90s, in which they do wonderful things with scroll politics. Mm. Lots of good stuff coming up. Do I remember correctly that the Super Scroll later gets cancer? I feel like at some point the Super Scroll gets cancer <laughs> from having this radiation being beamed across the galaxy into him. And it's like, you would think if anybody would have gotten cancer, it would have been asbestos man. But I believe that uh, <laughs> the Super Scroll later gets cancer from all this. Doesn't, doesn't Captain Marvel eventually get cancer? Isn't that yes, he does. He dies of cancer. Yeah, right, right. I, I just love the bits in this issue. Like, this stuff only Kirby can draw. Like, when the thing gets annoyed in the department store and he crushes a bowling ball. And yeah. just... The art of the crushed bowling ball. I just adore <laughs> that Kirby just loves drawing stuff like that. I thought it was interesting, just as a general development of the Fantastic Four, the days of the Fantastic Four being a really super postmodern comic seem to have gone away. They're not reading comics and hanging out with Lee and Dicko anymore. This hmm. is starting to become like more of a real world and less of a trippy postmodern aware they're a comic book, aware of what's going on, you know, talking about other superheroes, talking about themselves as sort of fictional world. That's sort of gone away, which it sort of has to. You can't keep that up. And then make this be a real ongoing universe. Well, it never 100% goes away. It's still played with at various points going forward for years and years. Oh, yeah. But other other writers will do it. But I I think that, you know, Lee and Kirby, again, and we always get well, ourselves let, into trouble with this. But I no, think that Lee yeah. and Kirby have said, no, 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 let's start taking this comic in a little less self-aware. In the, the third annual with the wedding, Stan and Jack show up for the wedding and are not allowed in. Yes, that is true. 
(laughs) All right. Journey into mystery. I believe this is your turn. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. The books that are not Sanchez Steve books, we are going to try to move through quickly. So let's just blast through this issue of Journey to Mystery. Should I put a five-minute timer on you here? Put a five-minute timer on me. (laughs) Okay. Plot by Stanley, script by R. Burns, Robert Bernstein, Pencil and inking by Joe Zanat. Chain is pissed at Don for leaving work in the middle of the day. He was, of course, off saving a busload of people. Then we see a tomb of Merlin opens up. Merlin gets out that night. We see excellent art by Sinat, remembering the days back in Camelot. Again, Sinat's penciling and ink seem better suited for a daily comic strip, in this case, Prince Valiant. Merlin, of course, not for the last time this month, tampers with a missile test. We have seen this over and over and over again. And this has before happened more than once in a given month. And here we have another month in which two different villains tamper with a missile test and make it go up. So first of all, how many missile tests was the United States doing? This is like all the United States would do at this time. Don't we have some sort of the people's welfare we should be worrying about at all? All you're doing is testing missiles. And every single time a supervillain messes with it, there must have been some incident in American history at around this time where there was one or a series of mysteriously failed missile launches. So that Stan Lee just said, okay, the source of these mysteriously failed missile launches is various villains. Well, it was the beginning of the space race. I'm sure there were lots of experiments and some of them worked, some of them didn't. Anyway, go on. I'm sure. It's not the last time we will see that this month. Thor goes, Loki says, is this you? Loki says, no, it was this guy Merlin. So then we see Kennedy and we get to see Kennedy's face this time and Caroline's face. As we check in with Kennedy as this goes on, Merlin buries Thor underneath the Washington Monument, which looks very similar to the way Sandu buried Thor underneath a building earlier on. We actually, actually, he buries him under the Pentagon. He brings the Washington Monument he uses like a super lance. After that, he drops the Pentagon on him. I see. You're right. You're totally right. So then we have a clever ending for once. Thor realizes the only way I can defeat this guy is if I turn to Don Blake and then go like, oh, if I can turn myself into Don Blake and my hammer into a walking stick, that means I can turn anybody into anything. And that means I can turn you into whatever I want to turn you into. And he's like, oh, you can? Uh, never mind. I'm going to go away now. I'm going to go back in my tomb. And he's like, aha, he didn't suspect that I don't actually have the ability to do that. He is back in the operating room. They say, as a surgeon, Dr. Blake, you're a magician. And he thinks, you don't know it, honey, but there's more truth than fiction to what you said. So yeah, then, well, 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 first of all, she says, you may lose all your patients, but you don't <laughs> lose any of them on the operating table. Because <laughs> earlier when he had rescued the bus, all of his patients had left and gotten other doctors <laughs> they couldn't discuss they don't die at your incompetent hands <laughs> uh well very good matt you did that with time to spare we still haven't actually talked about the issue so let's talk about it right. right i feel like they're still doing this thing where they're using up great ideas like merlin as a character with a lot of potential who they sort of quickly use up in the course of this 13 page Journey into Mystery Story, and I think they'll sort of regret that later, but they're burning through a lot of story. I thought this was a better than average Lee Burns Senat story. I thought it was Merlin is great intellectual real estate, is great free intellectual property that's sitting around and they get good use out of it. Meanwhile, you didn't mention that Merlin actually brought the statue of Abraham Lincoln to life to attack Thor, and then Thor uses Mjolnir like a fan to blow Lincoln back on his seat, at which point we don't hear anything more about him being used to attack anybody. Uh, But then I think that maybe Merlin built this city on rock and roll. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. 
<laughs> don't uh, now you're going to have that going through everybody's heads. Are you proud of yourself? I am. But then at one point when Merlin actually finds Kennedy, which was his goal, but he sees him and he's like, he's too young to be the leader of a nation. And it's like, dude, you were thinking of him in terms of being a king. Did you never hear of child kings? Like, Did not, said, in fact, your king, King Arthur, become a king basically as a child? Again, not thinking that through that much. So then he scares Merlin into going back to sleep for another thousand years at the end. And four, three, two, one, five minutes. That is fantastic. That was your Thor five minutes. All right. Now let's go <laughs> on to our Human Torch five minutes. So we move on to Strange Tales number 112, where we are introduced to the eel, who, oddly enough, is described in even bigger text on the cover as the living bomb. For plot reasons, but, you know, it just seems a little bit weird, like, oh, we're going to meet a villain called the Living Bomb. It's like, no, we're meeting a villain called the Eel, who is turned into a Living Bomb, but that's a whole other thing. The uh, story plot is by Stan Lee. The script is by Joe Carter. Art by Dick Ayers and lettering by Sam Rosen. So, who is Joe Carter? I don't know. Who is Joe Carter? Are you? Is he going to turn out to be like Jerry Siegel or something? Wow, you got it. I got it. I must have known this at some point. Uh, yes, this is indeed Jerry Siegel, co-creator of Superman. Co-creator this of issue. superheroes in general, co-creator of the whole idea of the superhero for all intents and purposes. Jerry Siegel, I must, you know, I do a lot of trivia and sometimes you just wild ass guess a trivia answer and it turns out to be right. And you're like, okay, I must have known this at some point in the past. Uh, well, I mean, I think I think I was leading you in that direction. The way I was asking the question very momentously, you know, it's like, well, who could it be? I mean, you know, Jerry Siegel. Yes, that is indeed who it is. The issue starts out where Torch is trying to show off to Glenville. He's like, oh, I'll give the locals a thrill. But uh, no matter how hard he tries, everyone is just nothing but annoyed with him. So he goes back to his house and he's like, yeah, what's up? No, nobody wants to worship me as a hero right now. He gets home and he finds out that there is a local TV commentator who has turned into basically Johnny's own personal J. Jonah Jameson. And he is turning the whole town, I don't know if it's the town or the nation, but one way or the other, against him. He goes down to have words with this guy. So he shows up on TV and has a debate with him, but then he, being a hot-headed teenager, bursts into flame. And he's like, oh, that was embarrassing. Now they all they all believe that I'm this uh, a reckless, dangerous guy. So meanwhile, we cut to a helicopter breaking into a residence of a an inventor that lives in Glenville, presumably. Glenville's a really happening place. So I wonder why we don't hear it about is. it more later. The eel breaks in and finds this thing marked Project X. And he's like, oh, okay, well, you know, this looks like the kind of thing I'd be breaking in here for. It's the size of a suitcase, listed Project X, seems important. I'll just take this and run. Well, and we should say that the eel's costume in no way makes him look like an eel. And the eel's thing is he flies around in a helicopter, which is not something one associates with eels. And the eel then becomes a living bomb. We do not associate the eels with living bombs. There is nothing even remotely eel-like about this villain in any way. Well, he is he is slimy and slippery, and he has an electric shock. And his lair is in an old abandoned aquarium that apparently still has living sharks in it. Okay, fine. There are some eel-like things about this villain, but there are lots of non-eel-like things about this villain. The eel goes to try and fence this uh, invention, and when he gets there, the guy's like, oh, yeah, that thing they're talking about on the news? Did you happen to push a lever when you opened that? Because the news is saying that if you didn't, then that thing is now basically a atomic time bomb with like an hour to go. 
So uh, no, I'm not buying it from you. Get out of here. So everyone freaks out. Everyone jumps into the action to try and sort this out, including the cops, the army, the Navy, the Secret Service, and the Human Torch. Uh, So they all scramble to find him. Even the wizard who's in jail offers to help if released. And the warden's like, I'm not falling for that. Johnny goes to the inventor who was stolen from, and the inventor gives him a, quote, transmitto. T-R-A-N-S-M-I-T-O, which he then uses in combination with fireballs to something, something catch the eel. It's not entirely clear, but he doesn't actually catch the eel. He catches the thing instead because reasons. The eel realizes that he's in danger, so he ditches the bomb in the woods. Johnny then tracks him down and says, hey, where's the bomb? He's like, don't worry, I took care of it. I'm, you know, not talking to you. Johnny forces the copter down. And then Eel is also using something called an aqua attractor gun to douse his flame. But then he makes a mistake of after dousing his flame, then using the electric shock on him. And the electric shock lets him flame back up again, even though he had been drenched. So it then turns out that the place where the eel had ditched the bomb, yeah, it was in the woods, but it was actually really close to a veterans hospital. Johnny goes out to find it. He finds it in time, but he doesn't find it in time to actually do anything about it. So all he can do is fly up into the atmosphere with it and let it explode. So this atomic explosion that he's holding on to, it goes off. He just has to absorb all of the energy and radiation into his body. The FF shows up and catches him. Well, So then we get something that we never get in Hugh and Torch. We get a big, beautiful panel. This is normally a very sort of penny ante book with very sort of penny ante art. Ayers never really gets to do anything bigger bombastic, but Ayers really sort of tops himself with this huge panel of Johnny absorbing the nuclear explosion. And it's rather nice. Yes. You're eating into my time, buddy. I know. (laughs) So Fantastic Four show up. Uh, It seems like Johnny is dying, if not already dead. The thing, meanwhile, is absolutely furious and is furious at himself for always having been gruff and mean to the kid. Meanwhile, the whole world is mourning the... TV commentator recants all of his bad opinions. The underworld, meanwhile, is cackling about this whole thing. And then everyone gets news that he's actually not dead. Everybody celebrates except the bad guys who don't. And then we see Thing in a turtleneck and he is grumpy to Johnny again. And five minutes right there. (laughs) Well, now we can't discuss it. Um, (laughs) I thought this could not have been a more forgettable villain. The eel is just a terrible villain in lots of ways. And it was a fairly forgettable story, except for that getting one of the rare chances for heirs to really show up in the art and do a big, beautiful explosion. I think that is, uh, that is the only real memorable thing about this comic. Well, the eel does remain a, uh, a recurring villain for years and years in one way or another. I think he ends up being in a group that attacks the X-Men in a few years, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's right. He does. Yes. Yeah. But, but I, uh, I, lo- I love the thing in a purple turtleneck. Yes, that, I that, that's my favorite turtleneck. thing. That's my favorite thing about this issue. <laughs> so let me point out that, you know, we don't have any Doctor Strange in this issue. We do, however, have a totally gorgeous Ditko backup and sort of an Eastern mysticism themed Ditko backup. So Ditko, you know, it's not like he wasn't available. It's not like he wasn't around. It's not like he wasn't willing to do a, you know, beautiful story with Stan Lee in this issue, but no Doctor Strange. We're going to have two months off of Doctor Strange. In the Marvel Unlimited reprints that I'm reading, they do not have that backup in here. So I'm assuming it might have actually been from inventory. That oh, it might okay. have been, been. been a reprint. Yeah, might be. We got to see the thing in a turtleneck, if nothing else. And we got to see a, a beautiful panel drawn by Ayers. So now it's time to move on to Tales of Suspense, correct? Let's go ahead and do Tales of Suspense number 45, an 18-page super epic, so longer than the usual 
Iron Man story. The icy fingers of Jack Frost are reaching out for Iron Man. So we have this villain, Jack Frost. He is trying to freeze Iron Man, but he has already frozen two people behind Iron Man. And this is yet another case where they're like joking around when they were like, oh, here's two characters you'll never forget. But in fact, these are two characters you'll never forget. It says also in this great issue, introducing Pepper Potts with Pepper in quotes and Happy Hogan with Happy in quotes, destined to become two of your favorite supporting characters. In fact, they will one day be played by Gwyneth Paltrow and John Favreau, and they will indeed be beloved supporting characters in both page and screen. They are not wrong. Indeed. So I got to say, we've been going back and forth on heck. At first, you liked him and I didn't. And then I liked him and you didn't. I'm <laughs> suspecting that right around this time, we're going to start agreeing on heck, which is to say, I think this issue is terrible. <laughs> I would say it's around the same level as what I was talking about the other day. So I don't think it's terrible, but it certainly is starting to move in a direction that I know it's going to keep moving in that direction. And I'm not. It is. And I, I am not at all a fan of this issue. I find that I, I never like his villains, his idea of ugly faces. I think that heck is good with beauty. I think he is good with young, fashionable, hip couple like Hank and Jan. And he's fine with Tony Stark. But whenever there's anybody who heck does not consider to be beautiful, he just really, ugh, they're just terrible. So, story pot Stanley, script art burns, art penciling and making Don Heck, Icy Figures Jack Frost. We begin with some cops are going by on their motorcycles when Tony roller skates by. So, we've got a lot of stuff this week where Tony likes to travel while vertical. And Tony's (laughs) standing up, roller skating down the road, looking really weird, enjoying himself, then gets to his sports car in time to ride a sports car in a sports race. You see this in Iron Man 2. And as in there, he ends up in a big wreck and once again has to be saved by Happy Hogan. So Iron Man gets in a big sports car wreck. He's trapped inside the flaming car. And then suddenly an ex-boxer who happens to just be there that day watching the races runs out and rescues him, tears away the steering wheel, takes him out of the car, saves his life, car explodes. He then says, quick, quick, you've got to take care of me. You've got to get me to a place where I can plug in. I'm dying. And he's like, uh, okay, whatever you say. Maybe I ain't no Louis Pasteur, but you don't look like you're going to make it. Maybe we ought to call it Kildare. It says, no, I can doctor myself. Just get me to that room. Plugs himself in. And then he wants to thank Happy Hogan. So he calls Happy Hogan. Or is Happy Hogan still just hanging out? I guess Happy Hogan has maybe still been hanging out. He's still hanging out. It says five minutes later. So yeah, I think this is at the hotel near the Indianapolis Raceway. He says, oh, you saved my life. I'm a rich man. I will go ahead and write you a check. And he tears up the check. He says, I don't want it. What I can use is a nice steady job with three weeks vacation with pay, a good pension plan, and all kinds of fringe benefits. So I should explain to some of our younger listeners who are listening to this (laughs) podcast that there used to be good jobs with three weeks vacation pay and pension plans and fringe benefits. This was the thing you've never heard of, but this was an old thing. (laughs) It was actually before our day too, really. Yeah. He says, well, I could use a chauffeur happy if you wanted the job's yours. Says, now you're talking a nice, quiet, safe job. No broken noses, no knockout punches. What kind of car do you have? I don't like jalopies. He says, well, I have, among others, a Rolls Royce, a Caddy Eldorado, and a two-seater Jaguar convertible. They'll manage to get me where I'm going. I'm glad you're satisfied, Happy. Now I'll write you a check for 10 grand so you can get a few odds and ends to prepare for the job. So then they go by where they're building the World's Fairground for 1964. And Shea Stadium. And Shea Stadium. They meet Tony's secretary. So this is Stanley who's been going like, okay, these books aren't really working to a certain extent. Iron Man isn't really working. Tony Stark can't carry this book by himself. He needs a supporting cast. And we are going to give him a supporting cast. What will turn out to be an immortal supporting cast, a supporting cast for the ages that he will get another 60 years of story out of and a lot of great movies out of. His chauffeur, 
ex-boxer Happy Hogan, and we get his secretary, Pepper Potts, who instantly is feuding with Happy Hogan. They will, of course, eventually get married and then divorced. For now, they are feuding. She actually does that thing they would do in comics where there's icicles dripping from her speech balloon as she talks to him. And she says, my dear Mr. Hogan, your dream would only be my nightmare. In short, you wouldn't be my type, even if you were my type. They are instantly bickering, which, of course, two co-workers who are bickering with each other is not a good source of sexual tension. But they didn't know that at the time. So meanwhile, about the way that Pepper Potts looks here, have you ever heard a story of this character being patterned visually after an actress? No, I haven't. I forget where I heard this, so I don't know where it came from. But I've heard that this original version of her was patterned after Ann B. Davis, otherwise known as Alice the Maid from the Brady Bunch. Ha! Okay. I guess she looks much more traditionally beautiful later on. Years from now, there's some point where they have like a pinup page of Pepper Potts and they actually mention that she used to be sort of a mousy little girl with freckles. But then she realized what Stark really likes. And so she turned herself into a supermodel, basically. And it's like, you could really do that. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who would do that if you could just do that. That is the story I've heard, that she is based okay. on Ann B. Davis here. I guess where? I just sort of realized that Happy Hogan has what they called cauliflower ear that Xboxers yeah. would have, where your ears swell up. But I think Heck does a nice job with both of them, really. Yes. I like his sort of cutesy pepper pots. She's got freckles and her hair is done up and, you know, you can see how she sort of might benefit from a makeover. I like them both. I think that they are good visual designs. But then we meet... Absolutely. Someone who I hate the visual design of. We cut to Tony Stark. He is in his lab. He is putting on his Iron Man armor when suddenly he hears somebody is breaking into the lab trying to steal from him. He finds out it's one of his greatest scientists. It's Professor Shapunka, one of my most trusted scientists. And then Happy comes out and helps him, goes in, sends the guy off to jail. And I think they like at the top of page 12 on the left. No, he doesn't send him to jail. He doesn't send him to jail. That's the whole plot point here. Iron Man traps Dr. Shapanka in the vault and then says, oh, I'll go get Tony Stark who will come and get you. And so then he comes back and the police are there and he says, no, I'm not going to press charges because this guy actually did do a lot of good work for me. And out of my gratitude for the good work he's done for me over the years, I won't press charges because of this mistake. Just get out of here. Okay, so then which is not the last time that happens this month. The upper left-hand panel of page 12, I really just don't like the way he draws villains' faces. Professor Shapanka in that panel is previewing some of what I won't like about Heck. And just in general, I think if you look at this page, the stiffness of the figures, like if you look at Tony and Happy in the upper right-hand corner of Mm -hmm. page 12, I think that that is sort of the awkward figure drawing that Heck will become more and more prone to as he goes on. So then we cut to Dr. Shapanka, who is continuing his experiments. He is freezing and thawing. Alley cats, alley cats never do very well in these in these books. The poor life of Marvel alley cats. He then decides to become Jack Frost. He decides to get himself a freezing outfit. He then goes ahead and goes to attack Tony Stark. Happy picks up a machine gun to try to. Uh, well, I guess a cop's there with a machine gun to try to save Tony, and then Happy picks up the cop's dropped machine gun and runs in to save Tony. Almost sees him changing into Iron Man. 
woo, that was close. I turned my back just in time. But then Jack Frost freezes Happy with his machine gun, attacks Tony Stark. Tony Stark, however, and this is, I think, one of the lamest elements of these early Iron Man comics, just sort of like 60s Batman comics. He says, I've got a miniature furnace. Luckily, I had the right component parts in my accessory belt, which is lame Batman-style shark repellent-type stuff. He manages to defeat Jack Frost and rescue Happy, and Happy then thinks... For this, I gave up a peaceful career in the ring. Should have had my head examined, but I can't quit now. Looks like Stark needs a heap of protecting, and Iron Man may not always be here. So that is Happy Hogan. Did they ever even say in the MCU that he was a boxer? Yeah, I think so. Okay, because certainly John Favreau had played boxers in multiple movies. In casting John Favreau, they were clearly casting sort of a boxer type. He had played. What I think he played Rocky Marciano in a biopic, and he played an ex-boxer in Made and a couple other movies. And he had a few guest episodes on Friends where he played an MMA wannabe. That's right. I've forgotten that. <laughs> I think Happy's a good character. I think Pepper's a good character. I think it's really good for Iron Man to get a supporting cast. But I think it's a shame that Hex Art is going downhill. So good news and bad news for yeah. Iron Man. Although, as you said, I love his characterizations of Happy and Pepper. They are not generic people. Lots of times, lots of comics artists, even great comics artists, oftentimes they'll just have two or three stock faces that they use, and that's all they can do. So no matter how fantastic they are as comic book artists, you're just not going to have much more than that. These two characters have some real character to them. Yeah. So we're going to have so much to say about Avengers and X-Men. That's going to end up being the end of this episode. Part one of September 1963. Bye, folks. We will be back probably in just a week with part two of this episode. All right. That's great. Thanks for coming along, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.